0: welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv
1: Glani and today in Raise the Line, I'm really happy to welcome Dr. Michael Howell, who's the Chief Clinical Officer at Google, where he leads the team of experts who provide guidance for the company's health-related products, research, and services. It's a natural extension of a career that's been devoted to improving the quality, safety, and science of how care is delivered and helping people get the best information across their health journey. Dr. Howell previously served as the University of Chicago Medicine's Chief Quality Officer and was an Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Chicago and at Harvard Medical School. He has also practiced pulmonary and critical care medicine for many years. Dr. Howell has published more than 100 research articles, editorials, and book chapters, and is the author of Understanding Healthcare Delivery Science one of the foundational textbooks in the field. He has also served as an advisor for the CDC, for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and for the National Academy of Medicine. Today's conversation will build on what we learned recently about Google's work in the healthcare space from Dr. Kapil Parak, who is Senior Medical Lead at Google. And I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Howell in person at the AI and Health Conference in San Diego over the summer. So Dr. Howell, thanks for taking the time to be with us today.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to see you again.
1: So we always like to ask our guests to, in their own words, tell us what first got them interested in a career in medicine.
0: Yeah, I I have no idea. <laughs> so I was one of those kids who, for some reason, never wanted to be anything besides a doctor. So my parents tell me that the first toy I ever, I ever asked for was one of those Fisher-Price doctor sets. But it's not, you know, my mom was a secretary and then became an accountant. My dad went to trade school as an electrician and then became an electrical engineer. We didn't have anyone in health or healthcare in the family. Just never wanted to be anything besides a doctor. Wow, that's awesome. No, it's a, it's a gift. I think like I, I feel very lucky to have to have known that. I thought, you know, when I went to residency. I thought I wanted to be a primary care doc, and you know, became a, a mostly a critical care doc, pulmonary and critical care, which is a big surprise to me. I don't. Not sure i'd even been in an adult i c u in medical school, but you know in the in the fullness of time i've i've come to believe that there are many kinds of generalists, and that the the part that I always loved was taking care of the whole person and the family
1: well, you preempted my next question, which is okay you 're in med school, how did you decide on on pulmonary medicine and critical care, because a lot of our audience are sort of you know they go into med school wanting to be a neurosurgeon and they leave as a psychiatrist as an example. So, a- any advice for them based on your trajectory of how you chose that specialty and, and made the most of it?
0: Yeah, I I I learned I love taking care of sick people, and you know very sick people. And this ha- that that happened during residency, and the the part that I loved about about critical care was a few things. One is often what you're doing is helping families and patients understand what's going on. And you know many times they haven't had all the communication that they should about the underlying condition that they have. And so ICU docs and nurses and chaplains and all of us are in this position of, of getting to prevent a huge amount of suffering by talking to people and so you do that for part of your time part of the time you know most things are, are routine and you see them a lot but there there are some like like true sherlock holmes kind of cases that come to the icu and you get to sit there and think in the, like this deep internist way and then you know a third of the time you're using your hands to do stuff and if you can't get it done nobody like the person's really in trouble and so it's this nice mix of for me it was in this nice mix of things that were procedural, things that were cognitive, and things where the most important thing was to be able to understand what the patient and family needed and to give them the information they needed to make decisions. Hmm. That's uh,
1: that's very interesting and a good way to break down kind of what what that career path would entail and also kind of preempt some of the work I think you've been doing since then, both at Chicago and and now at Google, with regards to... Making information accessible to folks and improving quality. So let's start with University of Chicago and and your decision to get into leadership positions, including being ultimately chief quality officer. Can you talk to us a bit about that transition from being a clinician to being a, a clinical leader at a at a well renowned healthcare system?
0: Yeah, I was. So I was in Boston for 14 years and had the good luck very early as a pga two, I think, to get randomly assigned to this experimental rotation, which is very common now, it was it was really odd, then, to get randomly assigned to this rotation of quality and safety. And so lo- like you would rotate onto nephrology or cardiology, you'd rotate onto the quality and safety service. And I I'd had one real job before medical school where I did workflow analysis and automation for Rockwell when they were their prime contractor for the space shuttle. But in like the most boring way possible, I was in the materials management group, which is the the group of how do you buy things and stay compliant with federal contracting? And I did like forms routing (laughs) and but it was it turns out to be sort of lean process improvement stuff. And so I was like, oh, I, I remember being an intern and getting called in for my like first like crash central line in the CCU. And the resident's like, go get all this stuff for central line. And it was before they invented, put all the stuff in a bag. And so I went in and it was the supply room was organized by part number, not by the job you needed to do. And I remember thinking, God, this is the same problem as Rockwell. Hospitals have people who work on this. And then I went back and did my work with an intern and then later get randomly assigned. I was like, wait a minute, this is a job that people can have. And so my first job at a fellowship was I was responsible for the quality and safety of the nine adult ICUs at the Beth Israel Deaconess. And so I get this chance early in my career to be responsible for a, you know, fairly substantive, but contained chunk of quality and safety there. And so the the role at University of Chicago is a natural extension of that outside of critical care into the, into the full suite of what the health system was responsible for. Wow, that's cool. I mean, and again, that sort of speaks to
1: the importance of maybe being open-minded when you get... Randomly assigned on rotations, or you get to choose electives throughout medical school or residency or fellowship because it could really influence what you do. I recently read the book by Dr. Mark Harrison, who's the former CEO of Intermountain, called Possibilities Unleashed. And it was really fascinating because it, you know, he sort of goes deep into what it's like to run a health system and what are some of the lessons he's learned along the way. I would love to pose that question to you, too. Like, what are some of the things you learned being so high up at a health system that maybe some of our audience who are interested in taking these leadership roles at their institutions may be interested in learning from.
0: I, I learned how much things that seem mundane really matter to patient outcomes. And I learned how cognitively draining it is to do a good job to run line operations in a, in a health system. And I'll, I'll, tell a, I'll tell a couple of stories of that. So again, I'm an intensive care doc. One of the things about patients who you know commonly come to the ICU is they have bad infection, right? Sepsis. And there's a bunch of debate about what helps in sepsis, but it's pretty clear that delaying antibiotics in somebody with overwhelming bacterial infection is bad. And so when I was at the Beth Israel, I really wanted to improve the. the I really wanted to reduce the time. For how long it took to get antibiotics. Once we're like, this person has septic shock. Let's give them antibiotics. And we, you know, told people to do things and thought of all the things, and we just we couldn't get any movement in the median time to antibiotics. And so I had a I had a, a new project manager, first person I ever hired actually, and I was like, go to the ICU, and watch the moment that somebody says, oh, we need to give them antibiotics, and just follow it through until they're antibiotics in the in the vein. And what this person found, so everyone was like, oh, it's pharmacy won't approve them. No, it's like a two minute time to pharmacy approves, nothing. Okay. And then she followed the order down into the basement, into the clean room. And because antibiotics that are compounded need to be done in a USP 797 compliant Pharmacy. And she found that it was based on a label when a label was printed out and the label was turned 90 degrees off so that the pharmacy tech couldn't see when the label was printed and her intervention was two things one is turn the label maker 90 degrees turn the printer 90 degrees and for the i think it was nine most commonly used chemically stable antibiotics just store them in the icu instead of down in the basement dramatic improvements and so that project manager by turning a printer 90 degrees probably saved more lives than I ever did in my like entire career. And you just, anyone who's been in quality and safety for a long time has some story that's exactly like that, where there's no like grand unifying theory of it. It's just that that's how the real world is. And the real world is messy. And so that sounds how, what, how are printers oriented? Sounds unbelievably boring, totally life-saving in this context. And then the other example, fairly early in my career, I spent a year as the interim lead for pharmacy at one of the Harvard hospitals, because we were missing a senior leader and they needed somebody. And, you know, went from random quality and safety guy to a second largest line item in the budget after salaries, p and and, you know, and a, a pretty big team. We delivered, you know, ten thousand doses of medications into human beings' bodies every day, and if we broke, the entire hospital broke. And as somebody who, you know, has a research background and academic background, that experience and a bunch of my other subsequent at UChicago and other things made me deeply respect the care that my administrative colleagues brought to the table and the expertise and professionalism that they that they brought. And so someone one time told me about, you know, healthcare care administration. We're the people who take care of the people who actually take care of the people. And so that, those are a couple of things I've learned. Wow, those are incredible,
1: incredible stories. And in particular, the, the printer one reminds me of, you know, how often things are a game of inches and just continuous improvement. You can get 1% better every day in different things, whether it's your personal life or a process, at a, large you know, health system, and those can make bigger impacts over time with compounding than, than the Hail Marys that oftentimes we, we glorify and, frankly, make for better TV or movies, but, but maybe not as impactful as what you shared. So switching gears to to Google, so you've gone to tech, you, you joined Google. Google's had a habit of hiring some very impressive physician leaders like yourself and our mutual friend, Dr. Garth Graham, person you work with, Dr. Karen DeSalvo, we get to the paper you and her wrote from New England Journal. And then another raiseline Line guest we had last year on the podcast after she wrote the book The Long Fix, Vivian Lee, who, who was at Verly before that University of Utah. Can you just tell us, you know, what's it been like? What what prompted you to, to go to Google
0: and what it's, what's it's been like since you've joined Google? Yeah, I I joined Google in October of 2017. So I've been here now longer than I was in med school, which is hard to believe. And the the time when I joined, you know, so they, maybe it's worth giving a little bit of corporate architecture. So Alphabet's the overall company. There are a number of companies in Alphabet. Verily is one, Calico is another, and Google is another. And there, you know, there are a number of others there. And so, you know, Verily has its own board, has its own leadership, and we know each other and work together. But it's, it's you know, the, the place that I've worked is Google. And there were when I joined, there were a few folks around. Kapil is a good example. But you know, when I, when I was hired, I was hired into the, the group in North America that at the time was doing the most healthcare work, which was the group that invents new kinds of machine learning and artificial intelligence for Google to use. And they had a health-focused team. And so I had this chance to come in, you know, originally as a as a singleton, as an IC individual contributor. And two things: one is when I didn't understand something about machine learning or AI, I could usually find the person who invented them and ask them about it. And so, you know, I don't understand an embedding space. Oh, let me grab this person and like put them in a room re- be like, I really can you explain this? It's unbelievable. And the second is that I got the chance to help grow the team and build it over time. And it's just been amazing to see with, you know, folks like Karen joining, how far we've been able to come in a, for healthcare, really a short period of time. Yeah, no,
1: certainly we've been watching it for some time. And it's funny when you joined in 2017, that was actually the year that Seminal paper that's led to this AI craze came out. The attention is all you need paper was published 2017. So I imagine a lot of those authors from Google or, or DeepMind, Google Alphabet, were you know maybe even the same office you were working out of. So you know since you mentioned machine learning, it was kind of your original mandate. Would love to get your thoughts on on this craziness that has happened since ChatGPT was released. But obviously, you guys have been working on this for many many years at Google, and the space has evolved quite a bit. We just recently had. Nigam Shah over at Stanford, who you may know on the podcast, and he and his colleagues published a, a paper in JAMA about LLMs for healthcare and what health systems should know about creating or fine-tuning LLMs. You know, what What has been, you know, kind of surprising to you over the past year? And then le- I'd love to dive deep into kind of where you see AI and healthcare going.
0: Yeah, I think it's important to nest that kind of conversation in... there's a little bit of an arc here. And so I think, I think the arc is that, you know, before 2010 or 2011, there was a category of AI around symbolic AI or good old-fashioned AI. So think about, you know, IBM's Deep Blue beating the world champion in chess, right? Really amazing. Roughly, you know, a gazillion if-then statements and a bunch of ways to search through a possibility space, right? Amazing things, but then in around 2010, 2011, there, was this, there were big technical advances in deep learning. The idea of backpropagation and convolutional networks. And you know, roughly 2011 until 2022 is this era of deep learning. And we've seen unbelievable things there, right? The fact that I don't have to go through all of the thousands of photos I have and tag them with my cat, or my daughter's name or other like it just works is amazing. And in healthcare, we've done a whole lot of work in that. You know, we our, our group had one of JAMA's 10 most influential papers of the 2010s about deep learning for diabetic retinopathy. And we've done work in lung cancer and skin disease and sort of a whole bunch of areas. About six months after I joined, the Attention Is All You Need paper came out. And we, you know, the people were like, oh, that's different. I'm not sure anyone really understood. Maybe Jeff Dean did, or some of the other folks. But it was really different. And so, what you—it's—it's it's this the tra- the transformer architecture, which is the the huge contribution from that paper. It builds on this history of word vec in the 2010s, which led us to figure out how to do math on words and led to big improvements in translation. It's this sort of arc of things. The word "devec paper" has been cited about eighty thousand times. The attention is all you need paper, right? The T, the transformer in GPT. Similarly, you know, eighty plus thousand times. If you look at Google in twenty eighteen, we put out our AI principles, twenty eighteen, and I'd felt at the time, certainly from healthcare, like you got this, like people are like, why are you doing that? Like I understand, like convolutional networks great, but I think, you know, we were starting to see some of the possibilities there when you added more compute to the transformer architecture. And, you know, fast forward to today, and it has felt like we've had more progress in AI over the past 10 months than over the past 10 years in some ways. And so I do think that the People use different names for these, right? So I, I may I may flip back and forth between generative AI and foundation models and large language models and multimodal models and just lump them together for the purposes of this. It it does feel like this is an important technical step change. It feels like it may be the most important technical step change we've seen since the emergence of mobile and Android and iPhone, maybe even further back. To the internet. It's a big deal. And we're starting to see that both on the consumer side and in, I would say, some early work and research around health and healthcare.
1: That thanks for sharing that context. I think that's obviously really, really helpful to know kind of what that arc has looked like, especially because there's been there's been other times where people have gotten very excited about AI and healthcare, you know, IBM Watson being one of the main ones and then ultimately, you know. Led us to a trough of disillusionment. I think of AI and healthcare for a period of being, and most most of our learners or listeners will be familiar with the Gartner technology hype cycle. We talk about that on this podcast, and I'm wondering, you know, it seems like there's a there there right now. There's applications we're seeing that are coming out. There's very prestigious journals that are publishing evidence-based papers about how these model, how some of these models are performing and a whole host of different applications. I'm curious, maybe you can comment a bit on any things you're most excited about that your team or teams at, at Alphabet or Google are working on. I know there's the MedPOM model, which you know our audience will have heard of, but maybe if you could elucidate them on what why that's so exciting, that'd be appreciated. And the second is the work with Mayo, one of the best health systems in the world. Anything you can comment. And, and as far as I can tell, they're the Premier partner, you guys are working with as far as the health system to 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 deploy some of these applications. So again, whatever you're willing to share with us,
0: our audience would love to hear. Yeah, there's 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 a lot in that question. So maybe maybe let me let me take it in parts. So first, why am I excited about these things, and what do I think people should know? I think rather than getting enmeshed in the details of like how many parameters and which model and all the things it's worth thinking about the capabilities that these models bring that didn't exist before. And so anybody's gone and played with Bard or another chatbot, you you get the sense that they're able to act like they understand these very complex questions you ask in ways that they're able to respond in a way that makes sense. That's a new capability. But if you're thinking about product, like building a tool for people, you think about the capabilities. They're able to understand context among many unrelated things without hand engineering. It's a new capability for them. The multimodal models are able to generate music, pictures, also text, right, a new capability. And the most generic new capability that they have is that you can adapt them to different circumstances without retraining them on very large numbers of things. And so, you know, you may have a foundation model, which is read, you know, lots and, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of things. And you can give it a prompt to say, act like you are hosting a TV show and they will act like they're hosting a TV show. Act like you are a podcast interviewer and they will generate a script for a podcast. You can do those kinds of things. And in the, in the deep learning era you would have had to retrain on just huge numbers of examples for that. And so that ability to be adapted to new contexts without huge amounts of data return is a big deal. So that's those are reasons to be excited about it. I'll tell you about what we're doing in the healthcare specific domain. And so we had a paper in Nature a couple of weeks ago, but I'll tell you the arc of papers. So there's a December, 2022 paper. In, Ar- in archive, and then there's a May 2022 paper in archive. And in this, what the teams did was that they took a foundation model, Palm in December and Palm II in May, and then they fine-tuned it in healthcare. So doing things like, here are a bunch of questions that might appear on a medical licensing exam, like learn how to do them, really well, some other things that went. Through. And they did two main things. And I think the the reason to focus on these, the results themselves I think are interesting, but if there's one thing for listeners to take away is that this stuff is getting better very fast. So December and May. The two main things that they did in these papers were answer a set of multiple choice questions that are kind of like you would have if you were taking a medical licensing exam. One in the U.S., one in the U.K., and in people have been working on this set of questions. There's like a benchmark for a number of years, and we're getting better a few percent at a time. You know, over a period of years, and they gotten up to about fifty percent correct. Our paper in December was, and people say sixty percent is about passing. So, oh, our paper in December was about sixty-seven percent correct, and by May was about eighty-five percent correct right? Roughly the equivalent of top quartile or expert takers. Great. That's really fast, like really fast. Is it interesting? It's kind of interesting because it's an externally benchmarked question. Would you ever let a medical student who had passed their USMLEs out to practice autonomous? Like, no, right? <laughs> okay. So then the next thing they did is really interesting is they took a bunch of questions off of Google search that real people ask. They open-sourced these questions so that anybody could use them and and study on them and sort of help make an evaluation data set. And then they took these questions. So these are things like, can incontinence be cured? Or if I have rosacea, what's the best diet? And they asked the model to give it a long-form answer, like write a couple of paragraphs. And then they asked doctors that we had hired to write an answer like they were answering a patient. And then they took those responses. They gave them to another physician. They said, which one is better on a number of dimensions? Like, is this consistent with medical consensus? If the person followed these instructions, how likely is it that they would be harmed? If so, how bad? Is there evidence of bias? So things like that. In December, physicians preferred by a little bit the answers of other physicians on many dimensions by a little bit. By May, on eight of nine dimensions, they overwhelmingly prefer the answers from the model. December and May. So that's an example of how quickly things are getting better. And then a couple of weeks ago, we shared three new papers on Archive relating to, they they all have the theme of how do we move to multimodal models in healthcare. The idea that well, healthcare isn't just text, which is what the first two have been. It's here's an X-ray and you're asking some questions about it, you know, when we would all go to the reading room and like ask radiologists questions. And in each of these, they're sort of slightly different. the The teams have been able to show the ability to add multimodal capabilities to these models in a way where it's still early on the multimodal stuff, but it's likely to it seems likely to work. So again, all those are research not fully ready for clinical care for sure, but amazingly promising and getting better very fast.
1: Wow. Yeah, from December to May, those those statistics are incredible. And, you know, as somebody who I'm presumed to graduate May 2025, because as you know, my, my our listeners know my path, but for you as a reminder, I did two years of med school, left to start osmosis, screw that for a decade. Now I'm back in med school. So Hopkins hopefully will you know, let me graduate May 2025 as the goal. That's two years from this last paper you mentioned. You know, what should I be thinking about? What should my classmates be thinking about as far as how quickly these capabilities are compounding and what career decisions we should be making? For example, radiology. <laughs> should we just not go into radiology now or diagnostic? Maybe interventional, but not diagnostic. I would just love love any opinions you you may have on that subject.
0: Yeah, I I don't think... AI is going to replace doctors. But I do think that doctors who use AI are going to replace doctors who don't. And, you know, I, I said before, I give this example of I was talking about my mom before. When I was in high school, I worked for her for a couple of couple of summers doing doing bookkeeping for a couple of her clients as a CPA. And I'm old enough that the way you did that was there was a big sheet of paper and a ledger and you had a a calculator with some tape that came off of it. You 10 keyed and you added up all these things, right? And then, you know, somebody invented Lotus One Two Three, and eventually, you know, QuickBooks and accountants didn't go away, but the work changed quite fundamentally. And I think that we're likely to see the work change in really meaningful ways over the next some number of years exactly what that's going to look like i don't know and i think that there's likely to be two things that educators need to think about so one is you know in the way that there are standards for what do you need to know about the kidney like what does your curriculum need to have about the kidney in order to call yourself a medical school right probably going to want to be thinking about ai in that way you know, what do you need to know about lab testing, right? There was a period of time after the Flexner report when lab testing was not a common thing in most doctors' practice, but it's core to most clinicians' practice today, to many clinicians' practice today. So I think one will be what, I think educators will need to think about what do we need to be teaching about AI. Also think that it's likely that AI will change the learning process over time. It's going to be an interesting few years.
1: Absolutely. One, one of the reasons, I, I love that analogy of the fact that accountants didn't go away. And in fact, probably there are more accountants now than there were back then, largely because the demand has gone up. Now, you know, a lot of lot of businesses, small businesses that may not have kept books because it was too overwhelming or too expensive because we have spreadsheets and QuickBooks and, you know, the internet, mobile phones. Now you can take receipt, pictures of your receipts. machine learning that categorizes those receipts is more demand. I know this happened with bank tellers, like once ATMs came out, People are like, oh, we're going to get rid of all these bank tellers. But in fact, more branches got set up and more tellers, the tellers graduated doing more advanced things than than an ATM could do. So I like that. And I think that aligns, th- that probably makes a lot of people who are listening to this, who are incurring hundreds of thousands of do- dollars of debt to go finish their clinical training, it, it hopefully makes them rest assured that as long as they know, learn how to work with AI, you know, I think they'll be fine and, and continue putting the patient first at the North Star. The other piece, and I love kind of the work, you know, being able to have worked with YouTube Health so closely, obviously Google does this quite a bit with the search, is I think so much healthcare is, you know, you've worked at BIDMC and Chicago, it's tertiary, it's reactive, it's sick care, but so much of, I think, Medicine 3.0, as Dr. Peter Atia calls it, will be proactive and preventative, you know, where people can take care of themselves and their family members before they even have to see a specialist and I often say, you know, we'll never have enough endocrinologists to treat everyone with diabetes. So we need to figure out how to flatten the curve of diabetes, not just raise line and strengthen the healthcare system, which is the name of the podcast. And so you know you mentioned there's some things to look forward to right now based on these advances over the past 10 months and these papers you guys have published. When the boots hit the ground, what are some of the applications that you think are most likely or already you're seeing maybe with the Mayo collaboration that you think are kind of the killer applications we'll see in the next couple of months or years are already are happening.
0: Yeah, th- I think it's worth distinguishing the deep learning era of AI, where the FDA has approved hundreds of medical devices related to those kinds of techniques. At this point, they're in practice in a number of in a number of places. You know, those tend to have a. A very specific thing they do, right? It's task-centered AI instead of generalist AI. I think with you know Mayo Mayo has been an amazing partner of ours for a number of years, and they're using our Cloud Teams Enterprise Search and working with it now. And what that does is it has very private, secure cloud buckets that people can search or using generative AI. And be able to get you know improved results for people who are at that point of care around both around sort of general kinds of things, but summarizing things that are in the in the area of protected protected space. And, and I think that what we're likely to see is that there's there, there are a lot of things that we're learning about these models. That's why we're investing. I, I often get asked, why do you publish in journals like Nature and JAMA? And you know, I'm sure that it's not because journal editors move at the speed to which Google is accustomed. I think it's because it's important to show our work, number one. Many of these things have never been used in healthcare before. And so we're first through the gate. We want to show our work. and it's important to get the math right, and we think peer review helps with getting the math right. So I think that there are I think that what we're likely to see is that there are many areas of opportunity that aren't right at the point of clinical care that we're likely to see organizations use generative AI for. And those will be things like helping clinicians and frontline providers search through all things, helping with things that we think of today as administrative tasks. And if you remember the example I gave of turning the printer, that's an administrative task, but because healthcare is so complex, healthcare is so complex, That improving administrative tasks at the at the meso system level may really improve patient outcomes without directly intervening in the doctor in the in the room that the doctor and the patient are in. I think we're likely to see that first, and I think we're likely to see extension into clinical areas later. Yeah, I think that's that sounds
1: right. And I know, you know, talking to a lot of physicians and 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 med students and others, one of the things. We're most excited about is the reduction in documentation and you know the administrative burden that I think you know people are saying has led to or research has shown has led to more burnout and moral injury, systemic issues that I know you you were well aware of. I want to be respectful of your time because we only have a few minutes left, so I only have two final questions for you. The, the first is just general advice you'd like to give to our listeners about approaching their careers. You've had such an interesting one at the intersection of healthcare, technology, leadership. You know, any advice you want
0: to leave our listeners with? It's a great, hard question. You know, w- when you when you find things that make you angry in clinical practice, that's often an area for improvement, right? So as a quality and safety professional, I talk about areas for improvement. And that's part of the reason I got into quality and safety was I was really angry about, you know, I go in a room and like all the stuff I need for an emergent life-saving procedure isn't like in one spot. I had, it's kind of early and mid 2000s. And, you know, there there was a lot of play around this idea of uh, 100,000 people being killed by accidents in US hospitals every year based on the Institute of Medicine report. And in the ICU, you, you see when something bad, really bad happens to someone, if they don't immediately die, they come to the ICU. And so you're like, oh, these numbers seem plausible to me. And, and we'd, had a, we'd had a family member, you know, grievously injured by a really obvious medical error. And what that struck me as is human suffering was being caused through inattention to detail. And as a health system, as an industry, we should be able to do better than that. And so it's not to say that everyone should go into quality and safety, definitely not. But when you find something that you're passionate about, that's a good area to work on. And so for me, you know, I, and it it can be, it can be either way. So I'll tell one more story, I was a, I was a relatively young, kind of a newish ICU attending. And we had this patient flown in from another part of the state, really sick. And like once in a career, Sherlock Holmes kind of stuff, like coughing up blood on an ocular tube and, we'd sort of figured out, we thought that this patient had microscopic polyangiitis, super rare, like how ha- you miss it, like half the time on the boards, all these. things. And his spouse came in, and we're doing a family meeting at the you know very beginning. And, you know, ask something along the lines of, you know, we don't want to tell you things that you already know, and we don't want to assume that you know things that that the other doctors haven't told you. So can you tell us what you understand about what's going on? And his wife goes, I think he has microscopic polyangiitis. And we're like, wow, are you a pulmonologist? That's amazing. I'd say, no. Like, do you have a lot of pulmonologists in the family? Because that's what we think he has too. It's amazing. She goes, no, we're like, what are you doing? She's like, I teach second grade. And we're like, wow, that's what this is. We think this all the things. We're like, how did you figure it out? Because well, I listened to these other doctors and they kept talking about he was coughing up blood and he had respiratory failure and his kidneys were OK. And I put all that into Google and like seven out of the top 10 hits were microscopic polyangiitis. And I felt like I was seeing the future. <laughs> right. This is 15 years ago or something at this point. I felt like I was seeing the future. And, you know, we know that that's not the majority of the time. But it's a great example of leveling information asymmetry. And it's something we think about every day of how do we help people get this world-class information that they need for their own health, for the health of their loved ones. You know, when my dad gets sick, he is, you know, a Harvard-trained physician looking over his shoulder, helping him know what to type in and what queries to ask and like which link is the best one and all these things. I just want that for the world. And that's another example. Like, I'm not angry about that. I'm excited about that. And so my advice, to go back to your question, is when you find things you really care about, they're fun to work on. They're important to work on. And at least for me, so far, it's been a great career getting to work on things I really care about.
1: I love that. What a a great story. Thanks for sharing that. And just two quick observations based on just what you shared there one is there's this quote from Peter Drucker who said the best way to create the predict the future is to create it and it seems like 15 years ago you were seeing the future and now you're you know at Google you've been at Google for for, for 6 years creating that future with all the work you've been doing you and your team so that's that's awesome and the second is, yeah, when I made my decision to go back to med school, I wrote an article for Forbes and, and put out a video saying, these are the six reasons I've gone back to med school, mostly for myself, and, but also, you know, for other students and others who contact me asking me about these different paths similarly. And uh, I, one of the things I said was I like to turn the two Fs, I have this two F framework. One F is fear. And if you can push through fear, it's obviously scary to go back and be like bottom of the totem pole again. But if you can push through fear, on the other side is growth. Right, generally, and then the second is the second f is frustration, which you mentioned frustration there's tons of things to be frustrated about. You kind of have to selectively choose what frustration you then turn into opportunity, and it sounds like that's what you've been able, be able to do. I, I want to limit i've been working you know on stoicism to reduce how angry I get about these frustrating things, <laughs> but then again, getting angry at them and having a low barrier to entry or low you know bias towards action is uh, or high bias towards action is a, is a superpower when it comes to making change, I, I think too. So last question is, is there anything else that we haven't been able to ask you about today that you'd like to leave our audience with about you, about healthcare, Google, or just anything, your favorite hobby, whatever you'd like to share?
0: I'm excited for people who are going into the field today. I don't know what it's going to look like. Um, but the chance to get to help take care of people in important times in their lives, whether with AI or without, uh, is, a, is an unbelievable gift. And so I'm excited that people who have that in front of them, like you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, this has been a, a
1: real pleasure, Dr. Hall. Thanks for taking the time to be with us on the podcast. And, and more importantly, for the work you've been doing over the past several decades to improve healthcare, not just for your patients, but many millions of people who, who you'll probably never meet. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show, and remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen our health care system. We're all in this together. Take care.
0: If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.